In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away, Christmas is here, bringing... (laughs) Sorry, did I ruin your bit? Uh, No, that was timed almost perfectly because I didn't want to sing more of that song, Um, but I... I don't know what the words are of that top part, but I just know they go... I think you're talking about the part that goes... Oh yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Christmas is here. Yeah. Merry, merry, merry Christmas. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Um, so hello everyone. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah. I'm here with Amy. Um, and maybe I'll explain or no, Amy. Why don't you guess why I decided to start with that song today? Ooh, ah, uh, um. I don't think that they had that song in, did they? I don't know if I remember if they had that song in this movie, but my reason I would guess is because for some reason that song as a Christmas song is, uh, has got a little bit of a dark edge to it. Yes. (laughs) And I would, and I would say that this movie fits that tone. Yes. It's the scariest Christmas song I could think of. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, scary? I mean, I'm not sure scary would be... It's always um, sung by, like, kids, and it's, like, the sound of their voices where they are shouting that gaily they ring. Um, there's, I've always... I mean, I really like the song as well, but I find it s- ominous somehow. There is... Yeah, ominous is a better word than scary, I would say, but, and, and dark. It's ominous and dark for some reason. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, because the because the words aren't really because it's saying uh, daily we ring songs of of good cheer. Christmas is here. Right. Merry, merry, merry. I mean that's not very dark of lyrics, but there is something about the music and the way it's usually sung and the different parts um, that is that it's got it's got an edge. Yeah, <laughs> and so that I thought went very well with this week's movie. So Amy, what are yeah. we talking about this week? Well, we're talking about one that I think probably most people, mm, I guess there are a lot of young people out there that maybe have not heard of it, but um, most people have heard of this from 1990, uh, the classic Edward Scissorhands, your classic Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that uh, already sets up, I guess, what will be the overarching question of today's show, which you mentioned to me Mm -hmm. before we started, which is, is this a Christmas movie, or is this something else? 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that we can debate that. And um, <laughs> like to me, I think there are various ways you can categorize things as a Christmas movie. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a movie where Christmas happens necessarily for it to be a Christmas movie. I think a lot of things get kind of folded in sometimes. Yeah. Um, But what was surprising to me uh, when I was doing my research about this movie is that I think this was very much intended to be a Christmas movie by its creator, Tim Burton. Really? Yeah, because Hmm. um, of the release date. This is released on the 14th of December, 1990. So it is released in the thick of the Christmas season. Um, yeah. And you know what's funny? When I think about Christmas movies, I'm sorry, I just was like in my head, like running through Christmas movies where it's like quite clearly a Christmas movie, but not that much Christmassy stuff happens, but yet it's still very synonymous with Christmas. And not to beat a dead horse, but like holiday, the holiday was coming to mind. Oh God, we can't keep talking about I, the holiday. No, but just, well, yes, we can. I, I maintain <laughs> that we can, but because the whole idea is like, it happens around Christmas time and it like ends at like New Year's Eve and like, I get it, but they don't really get in. They like don't it's really show much Christmas. It's not very Christmas celebration captured. Yeah. In they the don't movie. show much. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we know it's the Christmas season. We know that's like why they're each like going on this holiday. But there's not actually a lot of Christmas. I was just thinking about that. Anyway, continue. So I think the two categories in terms of Christmas movies are Christmas movies where it's like truly the central. Yeah, like that um, Christmas is a major component of the plot. Right. And then there's movies with Christmas yeah. or where Christmas happens. Yeah, and that might also be important, maybe, but it's right. not maybe as essential. So, like, uh, this yeah. is like your Die Hard, kind of. Like, it's set at Christmas, right. but right. that doesn't seem to matter so much in the grand scheme of what the story is about. Right, um, right, and right. And this one, I would say, is is Christmas is more important, not again, not really to the story, but I think to the message of what this movie is supposed to be about, Um, which again, we can talk about as we move through this because I, which is like, don't be such a jerk to a guy who's got scissors for hands. Right. It's about being more understanding. (laughs) And I think especially like I was thinking of this just before uh, I called you, like, I think it's also about, Making a distinction between being nice and actually caring about people, you know, like, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and the Boggs family is a nice family, but ultimately even they can't rise to this occasion, right? Um, and I, and that is something, I don't know if that's a Christmas message necessarily, um, but it, you know, there's more heart here and I do associate movies that try and tell you about heart and about feelings like that seems Christmassy to me in a way. Um, and, but, and anyway, so we can continue to talk about that. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about who is in this movie, um, 
And so as I already said, this is a Tim Burton vehicle. He directed this movie. He also um, developed some of the story. Uh, he was 32 when this came out. Um, and I'm, and in terms of like where this falls, uh, Beetlejuice happens in 88, I want to say. Um, wow, I was curious about that because Winona Ryder looks much older than in this than she yeah, did in Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, so, and that's also, I was really, I'll talk about this in a second. Like her career is just like shocking kind of in terms of like how quickly it kicks off and then how she had a lot of stuff in succession. Yeah. And then she, like the nineties, she was like killing it. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is as well. She like, once she starts, she really doesn't stop, you know, like, um, and even during her whole shoplifting scandal, she didn't stop, you yeah. know, like, um, yeah. which I think is really quite striking. So yeah, in terms of where this falls in Tim Burton's, uh, oeuvre as a director specifically, he's done Beetlejuice and Batman, um, before this movie. So he has come, he is like a fully realized, like, auteur star director by the time and i just recently watched both beetlejuice and batman (laughs) did you really yeah well beetlejuice like during like halloween Halloween season and then batman i just like told isaac the other day that i'd never seen the tim burton or the uh, batman with michael keaton oh yeah and and batman returns is also Tim Burton. Oh, that's the one. And oh, that's the one that I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's the one with Catwoman, who's uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. That's the better one, in my opinion. Oh, um, but he also yeah, I'd does, never seen that, and he made me watch it immediately. Yeah, he also does the original Batman. Um, oh, okay. so the very first iter- more modern iteration of what starts the whole Batman train back up again. Uh, he does. Got it. So Got he's it. a very big deal. And also, as those of you who are fans of Tim Burton know, he part of what his kind of thing is, is that he tends to like continue to work with people both in front of the camera and behind it who are like kind of have the same visual perspective, let's say, or same vision. Um and maybe he has muses, and certainly both Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp were muses of his at this time. Um, and and I think maybe probably continue to be over the course of their all of their respective careers. But certainly yeah. at this moment, this is like a very big deal. So let's talk about yeah. the title character, Edward Scissorhands, played by Johnny Depp who was 27 years old when this movie came out, though he looks about That's crazy. 14, I would say, in this movie. I mean... I mean, maybe, I mean, they make him look strange, but I don't know if I would say he looks 14, but, no, he, he but looks, 27 is young. Yeah, he looks younger than 27, I should say, in my opinion. Um, so we don't really need to talk too much about these people's career um, because we all know who they are. Um, but I just thought it would be funny to say that, um, before he made his way as an actor, he worked as a ballpoint pen salesman, um, which is weird. That's Uh, very weird. And he actually got into acting, um, 
because he somehow like ran into Nicolas Cage. This is the thing. Sometimes I hear about these like stories about Hollywood in the eighties and stuff. And I'm like, what was going on in that place? Like, wow. So, um, if you get into a business because of Nicolas Cage, like interesting, uh, it's, it's it's an interesting going to be an interesting traje- trajectory for you because that's a, he's a, wow that's interesting because I could and I can picture it because they're both like kooky they're weird <laughs> they're intense guys but also I'm yeah. like how many other people did Nicolas Cage tell to get into acting in the eighties <laughs> is that he was just yeah well he wasn't uh he was like an acting salesman yes. he like walked around and like told people to get into Hollywood yes um so uh this I actually didn't know about him uh his very first credit is actually Nightmare on Elm Street the original Nightmare yeah. Um, yeah, which I watched recently in the Halloween season, um, and mm-hmm. in that one he does look like super young and he's very young seat. in that one. Um, what year is that one? Do you know? It doesn't matter. Uh, but. Let's say 1985. I don't remember for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, something like that. But so then he kind of, and again, what's also true about both Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder is they like show up on the scene and basically almost immediately have this like meteoric rise. Uh, in terms of their careers, because he's on Nightmare on Elm Street. Then he goes to 21 Jump Street for a few seasons. Um, then the same year as this movie, he also is the title character in Cry Baby, which I think is a John Waters. Um, and so, and and then, of course, as we all know, he goes on to do all these other things. Um, what I didn't know is he was actually nominated for an Oscar for his rendering of Jack Sparrow, which seems nuts. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. That is, I was, I'm not a fan of those particular movies. Um, they're too long. They're like 100 <laughs> years long. And I can't, I can't deal, but... Yeah, I know. Everyone acted like he was good in them, so I really don't know. Well, in the fir- I guess I remember that when the very first original Pirates of the Caribbean came out, um, mm-hmm. first of all, people loved that movie. Um, yeah. And I remember watching it, and I think it probably that one is still, like, I could watch that and be like, yeah, this is still good. Um, but his his rendering of Jack, Jack Sparrow was this thing that everyone was like, oh, this is amazing. Um and I guess it was uh, for the time. Um, but also, like, we now know more about Johnny Depp as a person, which is, like, he is a booze-soaked, like, guy. And so I don't know yeah. how far of a jump this really was in terms of acting to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't it's, want to, I mean, to, it's like, dark. There's lots of... He's not, he's not uh, a super darling in the press currently no and I that's Um, I will also say I don't want to like pile on in terms of like the current troubles he is having um because it does seem pretty terrible it does seem like he was a battered husband um and also per his whole being around in the 80s and 90s in Hollywood like it doesn't surprise me if he has developed a substance abuse problem Um, Oh, I think that's pretty, I think it's pretty well documented that he, that is not something that's incorrect, that that is corroborated. Yeah, and as well, like, 
I don't think it's a good look to like make fun of someone for that. Like, um, but I will say it doesn't seem then like the step to playing Jack Sparrow is like this huge, I don't know. Like anyway. Yeah. Um, So then we go to the character named Kim, who is played by Winona Ryder, um, who was 19 at the time of release. Um, And this is another one. So her very first credit was in the movie Lucas, which is a cute one, um, with one of the Corys. Corey Haim is in it. Um, And that's from 1986. So in four years, she goes from being, I think she's just kind of a relatively minor player in Lucas. Two years later, she's in Beetlejuice. 1989, she's in Heathers. In 1989, she's also in Great Balls of Fire. In 1990, she's in Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. In 1990, she's also in Mermaids, and she's in this. So she's in three movies in the same year. Whoa. Are released in the same year. Um, in 1992, yeah. she's in Bram Stoker's Dracula. In 1993, she's in Age of Innocence. In 1994, she's in Reality Bites. Same year, she's also in Little Women. Um, for the remainder of her career up until 2013, she's in at least like her IMDb page has at least two to five credits every year up until 2013. Um, so she's working like a dog. Um, (laughs) and like I said, even through that whole shoplifting scandal of hers. Um, yeah, I don't even remember when that was. I mean, I obviously remember it, but I don't remember, like, the time frame that I feel was. like that was, like, the early 2000s. Um, mm, maybe. And it was, because it was, like, around when she did a cameo in Zoolander. And I remember oh. when, and that was the early 2000s. And I remember when I saw her, I was like, where has she been hiding? You know, like, um, mm, mm. but then it turns out she was never hiding. She was always there. She was always doing something. Um, and then since 2013, she's kind of like, um, I, I hope this is purposeful. And I presume that it probably is. She's probably like, I've been like working my ass off for 25 years. I'm just going to do like one thing a year uh, going forward. Yeah, I bet you it's I bet you it's on purpose. I mean, and then she got, you know, her recognition again for Stranger Things and stuff. Right. Um, which did bring her back. I would in this way that I'm now I'm like, how did it bring her back? She was never gone. Like, um, yeah, but it kind of. But it brought her more, more to front of mind. Yeah. Type yeah. things. It reestablished her as like the true Hollywood star that she is, you know? Um, and so, and what's also weird to me about this run from like, let's say 1988 to 1994 is like, and we've talked about this before. Some of these movies, I'm like, Oh, that's an eighties movie and other movies. That's a nineties movie, but they all happened in like the same two years. And I'm like, no, 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 that should have been, that happened in longer ago. And that was more recent. Like, it's so weird to me to think about. Well, she looks quite, she looks very different in all of them. I will say that. And not that I've seen every single one, but like, like I said before, the way she looks in Beetlejuice, which is 1988, she does. And I know she was technically 17 in that, I guess she looks 12 and then right. in Heather's, she looks like 16 or 17 when that's just a year later. And I understand makeup and all that kind of stuff. And then the other ones that I've seen, Reality Bites and Little Women, she looks much more like... An adult. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. A young adult, but an adult. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that, of course, must be mentioned is that Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder were in a very hot and heavy 
love affair relationship from 1989 to 1993, which I remember this was like a whole thing. Really? Yes. It was like hmm. always in I didn't really remember that. like magazines. They were all oh. like, they were that it couple that everyone loved to hmm. watch what they were doing and like follow them around and shit. Um, in a very, now I'm like, that's creepy. What? Like gross, but it, it's the way things continue to be today. Of course, we also have to talk about Peg, the mom of Kim, who is played... Yeah, I love this actress. Yeah, Diane Weist. Is that... I never know if it's Weist or Weist. Or Weist. Oh, I would have said Weist or... But who knows? I actually don't know. Um, She was 42 when this movie came out. Um, And if you've watched Parenthood... Um, or the birdcage, you know who this woman is. She's in other things yeah, as the well. Bird cage. The birdcage. The birdcage, there's also someone named Kevin in the birdcage. And when she was kept saying Kevin <laughs> over and over in this, I was like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> at, first, at first I was having trouble placing her. Like I knew I knew her and I knew I liked her. But then when she started saying Kevin, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she plays a mom quite often in a lot of things. Um, I, over Halloween, watched The Lost Boys, which is a really good 80s movie about uh, vampires taking over a beach town in California. Um, and she's the mom in that. Uh, okay. so she, that seems to be, she, it seems like she was one of those women who like, she's only 42 in this. So she, I feel like she's actually not old enough to be Winona Ryder's mom. Um, yeah, but she just had that look that apparently like she was just, I mean, put, technically she's old enough, but yeah. you know, um, so like most of her roles have been these mom kind of things because she just, I guess, has that look. Um, and then I also... She's kind of got that voice. Like yes. her voice is sort of very mom-ish. Yeah. And um, about her, just in her regular life, uh, she adopted two daughters. So I just thought that was cool. So I thought I'd say so. Um, the next person in the cast, as listed on IMDb, is named Jim. And he is played... By Anthony Michael Hall, who was 22 uh, when this movie was released. Um, so, and I just had to do a little shout out. He's from Massachusetts, like us. So, like, way to go, dude. Um, <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and per some of our other conversations we've had, his actual name is Michael Anthony Hall. But when he joined SAG, he switched it around because there was already a Michael Anthony Hall. Um, and he's like, this is the theme I think for, especially for the young people in this movie is like just rocket ships to stardom almost immediately and very early starts in acting. Um, so his first credit is in 1979. Um, so he would have been like eight years old or something. Uh, and then four years later, he's in National Lampoon's Vacation as one of the kids, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. The year after that, he's in 16 Candles. The year after that, he's in The Breakfast Club. Uh, the it, Also in 1985, he's in Weird Science. Um, also starting in 1985, he's a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live. Um, I did not know that about him. I hadn't realized that, that funny. either. <laughs> well, he's like a good, not in this movie, but in those other movies, he was the comic relief. Um, I guess, but like it, for being a nerd, not for like, I mean, when I think of like SNL people, I think of like over the top, I mean, but they also hired people who are good comedy writers. So like, maybe I don't know. Well, and that's what I was going to say is like, 
he is a good comic actor. I will give him that for sure. Um, and, and that as a young person, he was really strikingly good, you know, like, um, cause in 19, yeah, he had good timing and a delivery in 1985, he was 17 years old, you know, like, yeah. um, that's crazy. And so for sure, like all credit to him, but I like, my understanding of how it works at Saturday Night Live is like, yeah, you have to come from like a writing background. You have to come yeah. from an. Im- they want you. I mean, you're supposed to. You're supposed to be writing your like the way you get on the show is like you write your a, material. Um, you write a thing for yourself right. that you can put yourself in. Right. Sort you of. create characters. You come from an improv background. Like, there's various pathways to get there. Um, but in his case, I don't think he had any of those previous pathways um and so he ended up on the show um in a kind of unorthodox way um and then he says as a result of being on the cast uh this exacerbated a substance abuse problem that had already started to emerge um and so he left the show after just a season um and at that time, which is 1986. So he is like literally 18 years old. He has to take a break from acting. He goes into rehab. Um, and pretty much from 86 to now, he is sober um, because it was just all of this early fame, I guess, was just too much, which doesn't really surprise yeah. me. Um, it's a pretty age-old story. Yes, um, particularly for young we've talked about this before, like child stars have a really like tough pathway uh, in a lot of ways, but particularly if they then want to continue acting into adulthood. Um, And in fact, this movie is like the first thing that he does after his kind of like once he's ready kind of to come back. Um, yeah. And I will say I, he was fairly unrecognizable to me for the first part of it and um, a very different character than I'd ever seen him play yeah. before. I mean, he's bulked up because he's so skinny in those other movies. You know, like, He's like a kid. Yeah. He's like, he looks like a skinny little kid. Yeah. Um, and since the early 90s, it like it seems like sim- maybe similar in a way to a Nona Ryder. It's like movies maybe are not great environments for him um because after this most of his career like he still shows up in movies uh with decent regularity but it seems like he does most of his work in tv um though he does have some movies coming up um but you know it makes sense to me that he really needed like a full like this i can't be in that anymore like that was like a time in my life um that was a certain amount of intense or whatever it was. And so he kind of like took a long break from that. Um, the next character that's worth discussing is named Joyce. And that's played by an actor named Kathy Baker, who was 40 when this movie came out. Um, and I just wanted to read this quote from her IMDb bio, because I feel like it maybe sums up some stuff about this woman. Um, It says, for someone who has made an award-winning impact in all three mediums, stage, film, and TV, actress Kathy Baker has been strangely denied all-out stardom, yet continues to demonstrate her versatility in whatever material comes her way. Whoa. 
Which one was she? She is the redheaded lady. Oh, interesting. I I feel like I've seen her in stuff. I've, you definitely have. Um, she, uh, so she, unlike these other people we've been talking about, uh, her trajectory started out of the New York theater scene in the early eighties. She did a lot of stage work. Um, and then through that kind of came to doing movies. Um, but her career seems to mostly be kind of like supporting roles, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing to be ashamed of, but certainly she seems put upon or She's like passed about over <laughs> or something. Um, She's, she, cause she clearly wrote that herself. I would imagine. I don't know if she wrote it, but like she approved it. <laughs> like someone <laughs> Is that wrote how it. IMDb works? I don't even know how IMDb I, works. Yeah. But. You like provide the information you want on there. Oh, that's funny. Um, so somebody came that's up funny. with that and then it was like, yes, you're, all out stardom was denied you. <laughs> and she's like, yep, put, print it, put it on there. Yeah. Um, and then the final person to talk about uh, is a fun, I don't know if cameo is quite the right word for his appearance, but we're talking about the inventor. So the inventor of Edward Scissorhands is played by Vincent Price, uh, who was 79 when this movie came out. Um, and who, like, uh, Kathy Baker, his start was on the stage, uh, unsurprisingly, but, uh, particularly because of, like, where we are in time, um, his, he did a lot of radio when he was young, as a young actor, because, of course, you would, because that was a medium that was available when he started in the 1930s. (laughs) When he started in the 1930s. that's crazy. Um, And, of course, he has that wonderful voice, so that does not surprise me one little bit. Um, I also thought it was interesting. So he actually went to Yale um, and got an MA in art history uh, at a British institution that I don't think exists anymore. Um, So alongside this career that spanned decades he was apparently often writing books of art history or like art criticism and he also loved cooking so he was also doing like cookbooks kind of stuff um which I thought I was just like wow look at this guy he's even more interesting than I would have imagined um and so even though he began his career in the 1930s uh most People who know about Vincent Price associate him with kind of the golden age of early horror movies, um, specifically Roger Corman. Um, and this this all kicks off kind of um, with one of his signature roles, which is as a mad scientist in the movie House of Wax, um, which comes out in 1953. And I feel like House of Wax has been remade or rebooted various times since then um but he's the originator i feel like there's a version with paris hilton in it yeah (laughs) i think you're right woof um so uh unsurprisingly by the 1980s because he's by then he's quite old he's in his 60s um he transitioned to mostly doing voice work um but this is his actual last movie role uh, he, I, I think he passes away in like 92 or 93. Um, but this is the last time he's, he appears on screen. Um, 
which is a cool kind of like send off, I would say, for him. Uh, so now let's talk a little bit about this movie itself. Um, I the credits are as like I think this is one of the things you get with a Tim Burton production is like every part of the experience is curated to be Tim Burton-y, you know, like, so right from the credits, we see that this is, you know, an unusual, let's say, um, production. Um, And what I just want to say about the credits that I thought was interesting is that uh, Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder at this point, um, their names do not appear before the title of Edward Scissorhands. So um, even though they were quite big stars, they were still not kind of of that caliber that their names were going to be listed before the title of the film, Um, which I think probably after this movie, that stops would be my guess. Um, But we're still early in both of their careers. So the movie's name takes precedence over their own. Um, so the, the movie truly begins though, we kind of open on, uh, a very aged looking Winona Ryder, uh, who is standing at a window, there's snow coming down and she's looking out her window to see a mansion on a top of a hill through the window. Um, And then we like kind of turn, the camera turns such that we can see the rest of the room that she's in. Um, And she is in this bedroom with presumably her granddaughter. I can't remember if they actually say that or not. Um, I don't think they do, but yeah. But she's with, I mean, I hope it's a granddaughter because otherwise, why is this lady in a room with a kid? It's a little bit weird and random <laughs> if it's not. Yeah. So let's say it's her granddaughter. And um, yep. already we can see a bit of weirdness here because, like, I noticed that the the bed the daughter, the granddaughter in, is in is huge. Like the it's very, It looked very comfortable. The but proportions were all very odd uh, mm-hmm. right away. Um, and so this granddaughter is, like, lying in bed and she asks her grandma Winona Ryder um can you tell me a story and uh so she says she will and specifically she's going to tell the story of a man who lived in the mansion up on the hill uh that she was just looking at Uh, and she starts by saying that there was an inventor who lived in that mansion um and he had begun making a man but he didn't finish And then her kind of final little bit is, she says, his name was Edward. And then uh, we're kind of drawn out the window and we have this flying shot kind of going over the town um, and also simultaneously carrying us back in time to when this story is happening. Which they don't specify time, um, really, do they? No. Because. Go ahead. How old do you suppose, well, I was just going to say, how old do you suppose she's supposed to be at the beginning and how many years, I mean, obviously they're going back to when she was a teenager and she's say like 80, <laughs> so it's like 60 years in the future that this is happening. Yeah, and then- I mean, I would say that seems fair that it could be like 50 or 60 years since. And the, 
And the time we go back to, would you say, is like the 50s, 60s? I don't really know how to tell the difference. No, that's one of my main questions is, and I, I wrote it down in my handwritten notes kind of in these very first opening moments because what we then are carried back to is the mom, Peg. She's going around this neighborhood, which is a bright, sunny neighborhood with like almost like electric green grass that hurts your eyes um, and these all these houses that are pastel tones. Um, mm-hmm. So really weird color choices. Like as a whole, it looks it makes the neighborhood look cool. But like if I had to live in the pink house, I'd be like, Ugh, my house is ugly. Well, I mean, obviously this is a kind of like heavy handed bit of visual representation that like when we're in Edward's world, it's all very monotonal, black, gray, um, that's it. Or even monochromatic, because white is also there. Um, whereas the rest of the world is this, like, uh, it's what a Instagram filter was before there was Instagram. <laughs> it's just, like, really, yeah, yeah, every yeah. color is very intense. Um, yeah. But, and that's why, because, so then Peg is driving around in a, in a car that even in 1990 would have looked old, And she's selling Avon, which again is something that people associate with like the 50s and 60s. And then she's trying to sell it to all these housewives. So you think like, oh, maybe this movie is set in the 1960s. But, and that's why in my handwritten notes, one of my very first things I write is what year is this supposed to be? Yeah. Um, But at the same time, Um, she's got an answering machine and the... Oh, I never even thought of that. And the electronics and stuff all look more or less like what was there in 1990. Um, so... I don't know is the answer. I I really can't Do you think that was a mistake or that was like a, a, just a, we are just making this sort of like, like ambiguous time frame so uh peg however you know we right away get this impression that peg is this very sweet lovable woman um who's trying to sell avon products with no success and so she gets in her car she's gone kind of all over the neighborhood and she like adjusts her rear view mirror such that then she sees the mansion on the top of the hill and basically what we're meant to understand is that she's like kind of saturated maybe her market. And so she's going up to this mansion to try and find someone to sell these products to. Um, So then she enters into this uh, kind of empty foyer slash lab. Um, Everything is covered in cobwebs. And I realized I think there are cobwebs in every single Christmas thing we've talked about this in this series. Christmas equals cobwebs. Um, um, well, apparently. I guess if you're doing a Christmas sci-fi thing, it does. Maybe. Um, because it's not going to be your average Christmas film, I suppose. Um, so this is already not scary enough to Peg. So she continues to go deeper into the house. Um, and goes up this weird staircase. Ah, it's such a bad decision. Okay, yeah, continue. Yep, 
so she goes up the stairs and she ends up in the attic, maybe like the top floor of the mansion. And there's like this massive hole in it. Um, and she finds this uh, kind of old fireplace that has been turned into sort of a nest um, where it's got like straw in it and then like newspaper clippings and stuff. Um, and so she's looking at that and while she's looking at that, she like hears a noise or like her attention is drawn toward the opposite corner of the room uh, where Edward has actually kind of scuttled and is hiding. Um, and so she starts calling out to him and saying like, you know, don't be afraid. It's fine. Come out. Are you okay? Are you, do you live here? You know, all these things. And so he finally does kind of come out and he's revealed coming out of the shadows into the light. Um, and what, what, Amy, why don't you try your hand at describing what it is she sees? Like what this, how well, this reveal looks. Well, he comes like, like, like you said, he's in the corner and like the shadows and he kind of slowly comes towards her and I don't think she screams, does she? I think she does make She's a little like, scream of, or like a, oh, does she? or like an oh or she something. She didn't seem quite taken aback as I would have been. <laughs> um, but, you know, we see what is now like the iconic uh, Edward Scissorhands look, but he is, he's got like crazy big black hair like all over the place. His skin is super pale. Um, he's wearing like this full like like leather daddy outfit. <laughs> um, and that goes uh, like just I mean most people maybe have seen this movie but just so we understand like the leather outfit that Amy is describing goes from his wrists up to like a mock turtleneck at his neck and then all the way down and over his feet. Like there are even boots involved in this yeah. thing. And then his hands are like giant. I mean, they're scissors, but they look more like sh like cutting shears. Like they look more like. Yeah, like he for um, hedges and things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, no, she does uh, react. I can't remember. Her reaction seemed kind of subdued to me. Because, like, when she notices these knives, she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I should have. I'll leave. <laughs> then, um, <laughs> well, fair enough. Because that would be terrifying, right? Like, because what, oh, yeah. what she thinks she's seeing is a man with, like, many knives in his hands. Um, and like a crazy hairdo and he's been living alone and he's made this wall of images, like doesn't seem great. Um, but then as he's coming out, um, the first thing he says is, and he kind of holds up his hands to her and he's like, I'm not finished. And so, so she's, what does that mean? Well, I, God knows what she thinks it is, but we, somehow already as the viewer I think we know that he's this mechanical man and he's he's not been completed and then um Peg kind of comes closer and uh she asks him like is he here alone where are your parents and when she asks 
I think she says, like, where's your mother? And Edward is almost like, I don't know what mother means, you know. But then when she asks, where's your father? He says he didn't wake up. And so then there's this, like, look of kind of, this is why Dan Weist is such a good actress. Like, there's she does a lot of really good reactions um, because you can see her kind of take that in and start to, understand like here is this being who has been alone for it's unclear how long um and she and as she gets closer to him she sees that he's got all these scars on his face um because he has cut himself like inadvertently over the course of the time that he's been alone and he hasn't been able and no one has been there to care for him you know and to help him um so and i mean i do like this whole avon gag that they keep repeating over the course of the movie because then she this is one of my favorite parts she's like well um i'd like to recommend a good astringent to help avoid infection (laughs) and she does this like thing with her hand where she like twirls it around her face and she's like and to prevent infection her hand is like flat um and so then she does that uh, and then again, she's like, you can see her thinking through. And then she just says to him, I think you should just come home with me. Uh, and that is precisely mm-hmm. what happens. Um, so I mean, I, it's an interesting choice. It is an interesting <laughs> choice. And that's the, this is going back to what I think kind of the message of the movie is, is we're supposed to in that moment or from this interchange, know that Peg is a nice person um and and a kind person you know and and not judgmental I think that's maybe one of the main this is very 90s of it right like it's not judgmental um so then as she is driving Edward back to her home uh we get into what I found kind of like funny about this movie but ultimately Um, one of the more kind of cancerous elements of the story, which is as she's driving around, all the housewives are on the phone with each other, calling each other and being like, have you seen that Peg is driving with some strange man in the car, basically? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And this also, again, is like what makes you wonder about what year this is, because it's like, why are there all these housewives? Like, why don't they have to have jobs? <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. Um, so they all kind of like are on the phone to each other. And this is um, a kind of tool that is used throughout the movie as we see this phone tree of women kind of connecting each other um, and gossiping with each other about what's happening in the neighborhood and what is happening with the Boggs family and with Edward specifically. Um, so then we arrive in the Boggs home, uh, and because it's the middle of the day, uh, the kids are gone, Bill, Peg's wife, played by Alan Alda, just so we know, um, everyone's away except for Peg and Edward, basically. And so she takes him into the house, she starts showing him around, um, yeah, this, and then, oh, that's the other thing about, like, the timing, or like the the time that this was set in, because actually Isaac watched this with me too, and he was saying, 
he said something about it being timeless or like I thought at first he was saying like it didn't age well. Right. Um, and I was like, but then he was saying, no, 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 it's the opposite. I'm saying the opposite. Like, I think it, it's still good. Um, but we were mentioning about when they uh, go into, or when he, Edward goes into her bedroom the first time and the waterbed situation. Yes. <laughs> and, and we were talking about waterbeds. And then we like had a whole thing about waterbeds being like big in the 90s. And then now thinking about it, I, that did confuse me because I was like, were waterbeds a thing? Waterbeds were like cool. There was a time when they were very cool and I think the time yeah. the time began in like 1972 and remained cool until about 1998 and then everyone was like this is actually kind of disgusting. <laughs> it's not even that it's dis- it's not even that it's disgusting. I mean, yes, there's that, but it's like 100% uncomfortable. Like I never owned a waterbed I was like too young I, yeah I didn't really oh yeah because you can't have, like that's not something that teens like that's how that was the thing is like if you were a teen with a waterbed well because that were too was cool. like, like so cool yeah well I remember that I remember our uncle had yes. one and I loved playing on it yeah. like I thought it was like so fucking fun but thinking about like as an adult and I'm gonna sound like a grandma here but thinking about it as an adult like that would be so bad for your back and like just not at all comfortable, like, really annoying. Like when you have to flip over yes. and everything's like it's like everything's like glush, glush, like terrible. I feel like it wouldn't be calming or soothing at all because you'd no. always hear the noise. And and what if you like you wanted to just be still for a I second know. and you like can never be still. You're always like sloshing around. And if you happen to have a friend that's got scissors for hands, not good. It's not going to end well. No. And then just to add <laughs> to grandma corner, it's really hard to get into and out of those beds when you're old. I mean, I like I actually would like to s- sit on one and possibly try to sleep on one for one night now in my old age. Yeah, just to like <laughs> and just test it out. <laughs> yeah, because I just thought it was like a fun toy when I never thought about it as like an actual bed really. No. Um, yeah, cuz like it's true. Our uncle Bob is the only person I've ever known who actually owned one and slept well, no, on it. No, but I was thinking of Steven. <laughs> no, it was Bobby. No. Steven had one too then because he had one at uh at, at Pine Grove. No, that's because he inherited that from Bobby because those beds are so fucking heavy because they have to have a special stand like that they go that the like water mattress flips into. And then do you do you fill it yourself? Do you like go to the sink or the hose? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, that's waterbed talk. (laughs) (laughs) Here's waterbed corner. Here's uh, Marie Kondo decorating advice from Amy and Sarah. Um, But yeah, exactly. Like the, I don't, yeah, I'm not really sure what we're meant to read. I thought you were going to mention how, like when they show that first shot in the living room, uh, the television that they have is quite obviously a television from the seventies or earlier because it's those. Oh, I can't remember. It's the like TV. those big ones that are like they are a table, but there's a television yeah. in it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, like the one we yeah, had yeah. in our basement for many years. Um, oh yeah. But the most important thing that happens in this first kind of introduction to the Boggs home is that, excuse me, Peg 
shows uh, pictures of her family to Edward, and Edward sees a photo of Kim and is immediately in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, That's how it works. I mean, I know that it kind of does sometimes work that way, um, but... I actually don't know that it does. I was joking. <laughs> I mean, I think it is true that... And I won't even say this is just for men because I don't think this is true. I think some people, the first thing that they... Re- and many people, actually. Like, the physical looks of somebody are going to be, like, the first thing that draws you in to, to try and of course. write so fine. That's not, like, a condemnation of anybody. Um, but I think what's problematic is that, at least in the concept of a movie, right, is that when we portray men falling in love with women when they literally know nothing about them but their looks, um, that I don't think is a great thing to portray. It's not a great thing. It's not a great thing, and I actually just, like, in general, don't advise doing it because (laughs) here's the deal. Like, beauty fades and personalities generally stay, and if you don't like someone's personality, but it's like, mm, they're hot, like, it's like not going to end well. That's all I I mean, say. it might end okay, I suppose, but um, it's not the ideal yeah. situation. And I think, again, in terms of a storytelling and, like, the role that movies and television play in act- and how normal people think about life, um, I think it's really badly done and lazy storytelling to always portray it that men see a woman and then without any other information are like I am in love with her and I will pursue her or not as the story demands um and then particularly someone like Tim Burton uh, as kind of like you know I, I I think Tim Burton is one of those uh, creators where you're like, how much is this like your life? And how much is this informed by experiences you have had in your life, right? Where you've pined after some woman who you perceived as perfect, um, but who could quote unquote, never love you because you were weird, you know, or whatever. Um, and it's some kind of variation on the kind of nice guy thing. Right. Um, and, and I think particularly men, who consider themselves to be alternative in whatever way you want to think about that, can develop these potentially really toxic kind of notions. Uh, you know, like, I'm in love with this girl, she's the princess in the castle, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, and and I, and I just, like, you know, watching it now, it kind of, I don't like it, you know, like, I'm like, you can find her beautiful and be impressed by that beauty. But I, and I think they do a better job of kind of developing why they end up caring for each other over the course of this movie. But overall, I just was like, come on, man, like, do we really got to do this every time? Um, But what we learn is that um, Kim is actually away on a camping trip when Edward mm-hmm. comes to the house. So we will see their introduction later happen in a very kind of disastrous way. Um, the following day, after Edward is brought to the Boggs' home, 
all the men. There's a lot of shots kind of showing us that this neighborhood is all about conformity, that all the families do things in the same way. Um, so the night before, all the men's cars came home from the office around the same time, um, and all the women had to rush off to, like, make dinner. The following day, which I think is meant to be probably a Saturday or something, because um, you see a lot of guys, like, there was at least one guy when he came out of his door, he had a set of golf clubs. Um, so the implication is that the men are away all day at work from Monday to Friday, and then on Saturday, they're out of the house having fun. And everyone, so these so these housewives are truly like alone most of the time. Um, and so, however, this is not the case in the Boggs family because Bill, the dad, played by Alan Alda, remains at home that day. Um, and in fact, he's been given the task of trimming the hedges in the backyard. Um, and so he's there with his like shears, and Edward is out there, as is Kevin, the son. Um, and then Edward kind of notices what Bill is doing. And then he starts clipping the other bush on the other, in the other side of the lawn. Um, so that happens. Um, he also ultimately ends up trimming the other bush in the backyard to look like their family, which Peg loves. Um, and when Peg kind of like, I don't know where she has been or what she's doing, but there's also a scene where she, um, goes into their bedroom and her answering machine tape is totally full, uh, of messages from the other women in the neighborhood about what is going on at her house. And like, who is this guy who is there? Um, so, uh, ultimately what ends up happening is that the housewives of the neighborhood are not getting answers on the phone from Peg. So they actually show up on her doorstep, um, mm -hmm. and manipulate her into having a barbecue later that day, which again, I think is supposed to be Saturday. Um, so then we are at this barbecue um, or no, first we're in the preparation mode for the barbecue. And we need to talk about this because it brings us to the first flashback that Edward has, um, of his life. So he and Peg are in the kitchen getting ready for the barbecue. And Peg is like, puts a can into like an automated can opener thing. So, and then Ed, and then there's an object fade where Edward is staring at the can kind of twirling through the can opener. And that brings us to this flashback. Um, and this is, this is a bit of a puzzling flashback because Edward isn't alive for, so he's remembering yeah. something that he, he was never there for. Yeah. Um, but basically what we see in this flashback is we're taken back to the lab in the mansion and there's this kind of conveyor belt with all these different automaton parts kind of like hanging over it. And what the conveyor belt and all these automatons are making is sugar cookies. Um, and Vincent Price is the inventor of this, this whole contraption, whatever it is. And he's watching it as it works and he's kind of walking past and in the final kind of like area, and it, it visually it is kind of cool because you realize like every 
uh, different little component on this conveyor belt looks like a body part. Like even the oven where the cookies go into looks like a face. Yeah. Because it's got like two little um, kind of dials where eyes would be. And then the ears are these like flaps that move up and down. Um, so then like we see Vincent Price picking up a sugar cookie that's in the shape of a heart. And there's another automaton at the very end of the process that's like, isn't it like, I don't know, maybe shaking powdered sugar or something on top of them. I can't remember what the machine's purpose is, but it looks a bit like in a humanoid figure. It's got like a head, arms, and a torso. And Vincent Price holds the heart cookie up to the chest of the little body that is in front of him. And he starts to think. And so this is also why you might be wondering, is this a Christmas movie? But you might also be wondering, is this a science fiction movie? Um, That's, I mean, <laughs> I, I did have sort of double questions about um, that. And this is why... I might not accept that it's a Christmas movie or I might be willing to be convinced that it isn't, but I will say that it's a science fiction movie because it is about a mechanical man, which is a very yes, I mean, common science which, fiction trope. Yes. So like I was having questions about that exact thing up until this point when I don't think I, I don't know that I, I know I've seen this movie before like long, long time ago, but I don't know that I ever quite either remembered or um, gathered that he was a um, an automaton, non-human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like the main kind of claim to the science fiction. Yeah, I think that uh, works. genre. So now we know kind of why Edward exists at all. Although I don't think it's billed as science fiction. No, like. I don't think so either. But it is, you know. Um, so, so now we know why Edward exists. It's that this inventor had this idea, and so that's how come he exists. Um, so then we're brought back uh, to the world as it is in the story. Um, we're at the barbecue. People seem to be really uh, kind of open to Edward, and they're all bringing him into conversations um, and, like, slapping him on the back and, like, acting like he's a great guy. Um, so then... Uh, Joyce, uh, the very annoying woman who butts into everything, butts into this conversation and just is like, uh, Edward, you've never tried my ambrosia salad. And she has like a southerny accent, it feels like in this. Um, and then she literally takes the biggest spoonful of, I don't even know what ambrosia salad is, but it doesn't look good to me to eat. Yeah. Um, and she just like... I feel like I do know what it is, but and I think you're correct that it's not very good. And it's like she jams this spoon, like this big ass spoonful of some kind of, I'm not sure what all, but it's pink. Um, and, and so she starts jamming this food into his mouth. <laughs> and And I gotta say for Johnny Depp, I feel bad for him. I always feel bad when actors are forced to do weird stuff with food. Um, even though I know that like as soon as the shot's over, they spit it into a bucket or something. But like his mouth, his mouth is like totally full of this substance, whatever it is. And he's like talking around it. And then all these other ladies come up 
and start trying to give him bites of their thing. And then, as it says in my notes, um, the women start to give them their food, which all seems to be jello based. Um, yeah, like it all looks like different types of jellos. Um, and I hate jello. So, like, for me, I was. I hate jello too. This is like, a, I was like, that looks torturous. I would not want any of that. Um, but it also does speak to this whole, like, kind of playing with the time of, like, when is this supposed to be? Um, because Jell-O is a very 1960s thing to do. Um, and especially, like, fancy Jell-Os where you'd, like, put fruit into the mold, you know, and all that shit. And that's what it looked like to me. Um, but anyway, so this barbecue suggests that the people of this neighborhood like have accepted him in some way. Um, then uh, later that night, Edward has been set up in Kim's bedroom, which as we already mentioned, has a waterbed. But it's also like to add to the coolness of this is like she's a teen with a waterbed that's also a canopy bed. <laughs> it's, there's a lot going on here. I mean, like, I don't even think you ever could buy a waterbed that was also a canopy bed. I feel like this had to have been made for the movie. But like... At the time, that was like peak cool teen girl item to have. Yeah, well, because, well, in the 90s, if it's supposed to be the whatever decade, we don't know. But, yeah, canopy beds were like the thing. I mean, you and I both had canopy beds. Yeah, we were pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, pretty peak cool. If any of y'all wanted to know, we were voted like most popular in our class like definitely not considered nerds definitely like no, i never was i've never no, never i had like i had like 50 million boyfriends like, i've never had I, people describe me now when they're talking about their impressions of me as a teen as bookish that has never happened to me before no, and i mean we don't we don't have we don't have like a podcast where we talk about like sci-fi movies on the weekend right that's not that's not nerdy we've always been cool so if any of you all were wondering, don't worry we about cool. it. And we had canopy beds. Don't be jealous. Yes, we had canopy beds. We had American Girl dolls. We had Muffy and Hoppy stuffed animals. We had all the things <laughs> that it- we were. We were peak nineties. <laughs> if you were, we had all, we had all the Beanie Babies. Don't be jealous. You were more um, into Beanie Babies than I was, but yes. Okay, fine. Because uh, I by then I was already a bit too old when that really hit. But that that's not a judgment. That's just saying that was more your thing. Um, we're allowed to have different things. We don't. Ha- we're not the same person. It's fine. Um, oh really? Anyway, so point being, we were cool. Moving on. So. Um, Edward is lying in bed. He gets tucked in. And then we have another flashback, um, which have I said on this show how much I just like flashbacks? Yes, you have. (laughs) (laughs) That is the funny thing is like I do have I have like a very poor memory. And like sometimes like when talking about like something we've recorded like in the past, like I will have no memory of it. Um, but I do act, I do have a memory of you talking about flashbacks. I know. Before. I love it. I and I wish I could tell you why I love it, but I love it as a device. And so if a thing has a flashback in it, I probably like it more. That's just um so this flashback is where we see Edward half constructed. Um so and this again I also there's like so 
Johnny Depp, the actor, is standing up, but they've made it look like the table. So like his top half is sitting on the table. And then there's like his leg is sitting in front of him at like where his waist is in real life. Um, And so he's sitting there. And what we can see in this flashback is that in contrast to the Edward that we're seeing in real time, the Edward that's being constructed by the inventor, his hair is nicely kept. He doesn't have any of those scars on his face. Um, He's being cared for by the inventor. Um, And we see this specifically because the inventor is reading to him. Uh, to, he's, he starts by reading him a book of etiquette to try and teach him, uh, you know, how to behave in the world with people. Um, and then he also, then he's like, well, this is a bit boring. Let's change. And he opens like a book of jokes, I guess. I can't really totally remember. Um, but he reads something and Edward can't speak yet, it seems. Um, but he reads something and then it looks like Edward is like kind of, making something happen with his face and uh the inventor says you can laugh it's funny you know and then um it looks kind of like edward learns how to smile for the first time which is of course very heartwarming um and we we as the audience start seeing that this inventor really truly uh kind of cared for edward the way a parent would care for a child um and so that flashback ends and we see that Kim and her friends, including her boyfriend, um, have come back early from their camping trip um, in the middle of the night. So nobody kind of knows to expect her at this time. So she comes into the house. She comes into her room because as far as she knows, her room is empty. Um, I mean, it's a fair assumption. Yes, it is a fair assumption. And so Uh, she comes into her room and I was very afraid because it had been a while since I have seen this movie. Like I was like, oh no, is she going to get fully undressed in front of him? I don't like it. Um, but in fact, all she does is like take off her sweatshirt. And so she's in like a tank top and jeans or something. Um, and then she like goes to her mirror and starts doing a very teen girl thing, which is like examining her face to look for pimples and various other stuff, um, which I still do, even though I'm not a teen girl. So, you know, whatever. Um, and this is also where I thought whoever did like the kind of like set decoration for this was really clever because her mirror is all covered with like cutouts from magazines, um, and like photos of her and her friends, uh, which I think probably teenagers still do now, but it really brought me back to those days of like, oh yes, I saw this in 17 and I'm cutting it out because I like aspire to have these sunglasses or some shit. <laughs> like, um, so it's it felt very much like a real teen girl's room um, by having that detail. So then she's looking in the mirror and you can see Edward in the bed behind her and then she sees Edward in the bed <laughs> behind her. So yep. unsurprisingly, she starts screaming bloody murder um, and freaks out, which of course freaks Edward out. And so he's trying to like get out of the bed while this is all happening. And so because of that, he pops 
the waterbed like a million times in a lot of like <laughs> so I think the waterbed is it's just raining in the bedroom. Yeah, I assume the waterbed is ruined at this point. Um and we never see Kim's room again. So we don't yeah, really I think know. the waterbeds they just like close off that room. They're like, ah, let's just forget about that. Right. And so finally this little interchange ultimately concludes with Edward being put down in their like kind of fold out couch in the basement and um Peg kind of calms down Kim and then they reintroduce themselves and that is where we begin with them again. So now we're going to cut past some of more kind of just like interludes that are showing um, kind of Edward getting f- more fully involved in kind of the community of the neighborhood. Um, to now we're going to talk about a scene where the bogs are at dinner and um, Kim's boyfriend, Jim, is there. And there's also this, like, random friend of Kim's there who never even gets a name and I think only has one line or something. Um, And so they're all sitting around the table. At this point, Edward has gotten more familiar with how to kind of, like, be at dinner with these hands of his. So he's, like, cutting the roast with his hands. Um, <laughs> right. Oh yeah. And that's the one line that the friend says, she's like, I can't eat that. That's unsanitary. He used his hands. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so fair. I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, if you are going to have one line, at least you have one that's sort of funny. Um, like a zinger. <laughs> yeah. And so, but in the midst of this whole dinner exchange, an important plot point that is mentioned is that Jim's talking to Peg and Bill about how his father has just bought like all these like fancy electronics. Um, and it's kind of unclear. Like I didn't really get it. I was like, oh, maybe he's got a stereo system. Maybe it's a fancy television. We never really see what these items are, but we know that they exist. Um, and then he also mentions that he is in the process of trying to save money to buy a car. So all of this will be important for later, which is why I'm talking about it. So some amount of time later, it's unclear how much time passes in this movie. Um, Now what it, but quite a bit of time has passed because now all of the bushes in this neighborhood have been cut um, by Edward into weird shapes and animals and things. Um, And so he's like finishing up, I think, isn't he like finishing up the ballerina bush or something? Um, And he's so he, and I don't know if he thinks about it so much as this, but he's finished up with that and he notices this big shaggy dog kind of watching him cut that bush. And when he finishes cutting the bush, he like looks at the shaggy dog and then starts cutting away, cutting away. Um, And then the reveal is that the dog underneath is like a poodle. Uh, And he's like cut it into a very kind of like whimsical poodle hairstyle. And the woman who owns the dog loves it. And then... Pretty much immediately, everyone in town wants Edward to cut their dog's hair. So the following scene is like everyone is lining up outside of the bog's backyard where all of this haircutting for dogs is taking place. Um, 
Well, and let's also be clear about the haircuts that he gives. Like, the haircuts he ends up giving the people. Like, the dog one's actually... The poodle one was cute. Then he did another dog, and I was like, that dog looks heinous. Um, and then the the women's hair that he cuts looks... Like, the first version of the cut is, like, very 80s. Yeah. And, like, this, like, uh, side bob situation, like, asymmetrical, like, weirdness. Um and then it progressively the like mom Peg's hair gets shorter and shorter. Right. But um, I'm not sure. It's not my style. I I wouldn't have wanted him to cut my hair. Yeah, but I just <laughs> do wonder if like Johnny Depp himself, like if if because like in those scenes where he's cutting all kinds of things, it shows him like wiggling his fingers all around. And I just mm. wonder. He probably did have gloves. Yeah, I just I feel like that would make my hands tired eventually. <laughs> Uh, as you take however many takes you have to do to get that right. But so, yes, you've gotten us to the next part. So he's cutting all these dogs' hair. Joyce brings her Yorkie to get her hair cut. Um, and the Yorkie's haircut comes back in kind of like a rocker style. Like the Yorkie ends up looking a bit like a lion, like a little tiny lion. Yes, but like, but like not, it's not as cute as I wanted it no, to No, it's not as cute as you would think that, like from that description, that sounds fun. Um, yeah. But in reality, it doesn't quite work. So, it, yeah. Um, but then Joyce is so enamored of this haircut on her dog. She, she asks, like, have you ever done... Uh, Will you do my hair? And so Edward says yes. And then there's this very weird, like she when she when he's cutting her hair, she is reacting as though this is a major like erotic thrill. Yeah, it's not it's not good. Um, and when he and I also thought it was weird too because like he cuts her hair dry like so there's no shampoo mm -hmm. and as far as I know that is not the traditional way a person cuts hair. Um, no, but there is that there is a method. Like I mean, dry a dry cut is a thing that has become more of a method. But um, and I I guess so I understand possible to do. I understand it in the sense that like then you know what it looks like as soon as you finish cutting, I guess. Um, but The thing I would say about these people in this, where, which is where I don't think people would do the cut someone's hair, is while it was, like, fully styled. Right, that, which yes. Is like, I think these, yes, that was what these I was going to say. people have, like... They, these people have, like, a lot of product already in their hair. Right. I don't think people would cut your hair like that. Right. Definitely a weird choice. Um, but so because she loves her hair, which as you say, turns out into this kind of asymmetrical bob, which I actually thought I liked that. I thought it was kind of fun. Um, so then of course, all the women want him to cut their hair as well. So he does that and he seemingly does it in an afternoon. Like he cuts everybody's hair in town. Um, so then we're going to kind of pass through some moments and, we get to a point in the movie where um, Jim, Kim, and Edward, separately from each other, have all been at the local mall. Um, and they come home from that trip. 
uh, around the same time. And Jim and Kim are standing kind of outside the Boggs house. And Kim is like, "Ugh, I forgot my keys. Edward, do you have keys? Um, and Edward says, no, I don't have keys, but it's no problem. He, and he just like opens the door to the house. Um, no problem with one of his fingers, of course. Um, and Jim, who is seeing all of this, is impressed. And he specifically says like, man, you didn't even damage the lock. And so this is important as that previous dinner scene was. This is important for later. Um, so there's also a scene where Edward and Peg appear kind of like, it seems like on a kind of local talk show of some sort. Um, and I don't think this scene is particularly important, um, beyond kind of showing that, like, as we would expect, and particularly from the nineties, like, Talk shows of that era were very much like, look at this freak. Like, that was a major point of a lot of those talk shows at the time. Um, and this is like that. Uh, and we're getting the impression, because when the audience is asking questions, uh, you know, it's like a sick fascination with him and not particularly interested in him as a person, but like as this freak who has this gift, right? Because one of the people says like, if you didn't have scissor hands, you wouldn't be special anymore, you know? Um, so, and this also is used as an opportunity to continue to advance the story that Kim and Edward have some sort of special love connection, though, Again, he barely spends any time with Kim. So how this could be developing is unclear. Um, then we get to the scene of the movie that is, that actually like, cause I don't know how old I was when I first saw this movie, but this scene has been seared in my mind forever. Like, and I don't like it and it makes me uncomfortable. And when I was watching this, I was like, I know this is coming. Like, <laughs> and I wasn't happy about it. Um, but basically, we are again at the mall. And Joyce and Edward are there together because Joyce has decided that she's going to open a salon where Edward is going to be the one cutting the hair, I presume. Um, and so they're going into business together. And so then she's like showing him around, showing him around. And then she's like, now I really want you to see the most kind of important thing. And she takes him to this back room, which is separated from the rest of the salon by a curtain. So they're in this back room um, where there's a kind of, uh, I guess it's maybe meant to be for like an esthetician. Like maybe you'd go back there to like do waxing or something. Um... So she tells Edward to sit down on this like waxing chair contraption. Um, and she wants to model smocks for him. Um, so the smocks that the other people in the salon would wear. Um, and she takes out this one and, and for, and also adding to the weirdness of this, she's brought like a little boom box and she puts in a cassette 
and she starts playing a song, um, which is actually a real song, if you didn't know. It's a song by Tom Jones um, called With These Hands. Um, so of course, like many, many layers of, uh, symbolism there. Um, and so she models these smocks and there's one that she clearly loves because it's like flouncy and sheer. And she like show, she's like kind of twirling it around her. And then she's like, and then there's this other one. It's just like a plain purple dull thing. Um, and Edward of course is like, I like that one. (laughs) Like the purple, boring one. Um, and she's like, oh, don't be silly. And then she like climbs on top of him and tr- like seduces him and like uses his uh, finger to like unzip the like top of the jumpsuit thing that she's wearing. Um, mm-hmm. And... So yeah, all of this, as I said, like left an impression on me uh, as a young person when I watched it. And it was just as uncomfortable now as it was then. Um, And like, luckily, I don't know if that's the right phrase to say, Um, but the chair like breaks basically. And they both tumble to the ground and Edward uses this as a reason to run away. (laughs) And he does. And she comes, like, so he leaves and she is actually quite upset um, that this has not worked out as she planned. Um, And immediately Edward walks from where the salon is to a diner very nearby where it's clear that it was always planned. Like you're going to look at the salon with Joyce and then you're going to meet us at the diner for dinner or something, some meal. So he comes, the Boggs family is there. um, And Bill, the dad is like, so how'd everything go? And Edward is like, oh, you know, the salon seems good. Joyce says, maybe there's a place where you can sell cosmetics, Peg. And Peg's like, oh, that would be wonderful. And he's like, and then Peg took all of her clothes off in front of me. And (laughs) I thought this was actually done in in an interestingly good way or like intriguing in a sense because he says this and both Winona Ryder and Diane Weist, they look up at what he said, and they both have this look of, like, incredible shock of, like, what just happened? And meanwhile, Bill, the dad, acts like he hasn't heard anything at all about that. He's immediately talking about, like, oh, business strategies, gotta get some money, that'll be great, it's good for you to earn money. And that's the scene. Like the women, the women don't get a chance to say anything. And Edward doesn't say any more about what happens. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, whoa. (laughs) Like, like, um, you know, so basically I feel like it's a thing of like the women understand what this was, right? Yeah. And the guy can't even hear it 
um, or doesn't hear it or doesn't want to hear it. And so it doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. And no one talks about it, you know, and it's just like, woof. Mm-hmm. Um, and this too will end up getting turned around in a way that I think is unfortunate. Um, so needless to say, the salon doesn't happen. Next, uh, things, this is when things start going poorly for Edward. Um, because there's a scene out like in the street of the neighborhood where Jim and Kim are talking And it's now become clear that Jim still wants to get this car that he's been dreaming of. But he, this whole, like when he was talking about getting the car before, it was like, yes, I'm going to save my money and I'm going to be this good guy and blah, 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 blah. But now he's learning that that's hard (laughs) and it takes time and he doesn't want to do that. He's cooked up this new scheme where he wants to rob his own father of all of these electronics he had been talking about, um, sell them somehow to get money to buy a van like his friend has. Um, And the logic of Jim is that his dad has all of these items insured, so it won't matter anyway. Like, so effectively he's quote unquote not hurting anybody by doing this. And Kim is not a fan of this plan. And she's especially not a fan of that the way the plan has to work, according to Jim, is that they need Edward to participate because he's going to be the one to open all the locks, right? And like get into this special room. So that's happening. This then comes to fruition. And the next scene we see that Jim has somehow, by the force of his actually really unpleasant personality, um, and I and this too has a ring of truth to me of like the high school days of like that someone who's truly terrible manages to get all of their friends on board to the, their terrible plan. Um, so he's convinced his friends to come with him to rob his own house and. As the viewer, we are given to understand that everyone except Edward knows that this is Jim's house, knows what they're doing, but that Edward has been led to believe that this is somebody else's house, just some stranger who Jim has told him stole from him. So he has to steal the stuff back. So they go into the house. It's nighttime. um, And they are just kind of... Edward just walks into the room where all of these supposed awesome Trek electronics are. And as I guess maybe was implied or discussed earlier on, um, Jim's dad has set up this whole security system in this room where all of his good stuff is. And so as soon as Edward gets in there, the security door locks him in. There's like security, um, like shutters or something that come down over the window a big alarm is like blaring um and as you would expect the other kids run away (laughs) so he is left alone and the police show up um and again this kind of rings true for me and maybe for you Amy of like growing up in a small town like three police cars come 
to this event. And you're like, there is no need for all of these police for one person and for like a, a break in, like, come on. Um, so the police show up, they like are shouting through their megaphone, like come out with your hands up because they've like deactivated the security system so that Edward can leave the room so that he can come out and be arrested. So he, so so that's what happens. Edward starts walking out of the house and they say like, put your hands over your head as you would expect to hear. And so he does. And then they're like, but lower your weapon. And it's like, well, what you said to raise my hands, but look, you know, like, so he's stuck and they're on the verge of shooting him when Helen and Marge, who are two of the women who are kind of featured players in this thing from the neighborhood, they run up and they say to the police, those are his hands. That's not a weapon. Like he can't lower his weapon and keep his hands raised because they are the same. Um, and needless to say, watching that in 2020 was really wild, you know, like, and it kind of, it's so reminiscent of all the stuff that has been happening, uh, to black people for so long, but you know, the idea, like the, I was holding a phone and they thought it was a gun. I was holding a this and they thought it was a gun. I was going into my pocket and they thought, you know, like it was so, there was something so kind of like heartbreaking to watch this and be like, it's the same, you know, like, um, and also that these two white ladies, their intervention is what keeps him alive. Because they are going to shoot him otherwise. You know, like, so I don't know. I was, that was kind of a tough thing for me to watch. Um, so anyway, he gets arrested. And the next scene is at the police station. And Peg and Bill have come to bail him out. And they're asking, like, what is going on? Why did you think you could do this? Um, and, like, they specifically ask if anyone had kind of convinced him to do it. And he doesn't tell what the backstory is here. Um, So they take him back home. And as they're arriving back home, um, all the housewives are out on the street again, gossiping about what has happened. Um, And this is where, and this adds insult to injury, in my opinion. Um, As they're gossiping, Joyce turns things around and implies that Edward sexually assaulted her. Um, Which, I mean, it's important to the story, but I don't like it. And I also don't think that it needed to be done. Like, because the the neighborhood is going to turn on him anyway. And I don't like the look of, saying that people, that women specifically use fake sexual assault stories to bring men down, right? Because that's what this is, is she is lying about what's happened to ruin him. Um, And I don't, excuse me, I don't like that. Um, 
and and I and I don't think the story needs it because the the whole point is is that they turn on Edward for very little provocation, right? And so um anyway, that's what starts happening is this moment where the neighborhood starts to turn on him. Um and in this process when Edward gets back to the bog's house, uh Kim kind of pulls him aside and says thank you for not getting us in trouble. Um, and in the context of that conversation, Edward reveals that he always knew that it was in fact Jim's dad's house that they were stealing from his father. Um, and so Kim was like, but like, so then why did you do this? And he says, because you asked me, you know? Um, and so the next kind of moment in the story is we see that the Boggs family are having their annual Christmas party. And there's, again, the kind of housewives phone line little interlude where they're all talking with each other about whether or not they're going to go to that party. And again, it is revealed that none of them have any intention of going to the party, but they don't even have enough integrity to tell Peg that they won't come. So they just lie and say they're going to come. So again, now we see like... If the Boggs family, and this is my kind of thesis about this, the Boggs family is nice or maybe even good. The townspeople are nice, but bad, you know, like um, because they were all wonderfully happy and willing to have Edward in their lives when he was doing things for them that they liked. But as soon as he made one mistake, it was like you were never really one of us. You know, yeah. Um, so now we arrive at I think what's supposed to be Christmas Eve. I think this is Christmas Eve, and they're having their big Christmas party. Um, and they're Kim and Peg are decorating a white plastic Christmas tree, which is again very old school weird. <laughs> I hate that look. I don't like. I don't like a white tree. I, I do not like that. I know that's like some people's aesthetic, but I do not enjoy. I can like it, but I only like it in the context of a world where like getting a real tree is hard. So like if you're in Florida or Hawaii and you get a white tree and you just go full, it's like, it's going to be fake anyway. So we're going to go full fake. Um, yeah, that's fine. Or, I mean, I get that, but I would prefer like, or if that's like your secondary tree, like if you have multiple trees and you want to have like one that's white just for like the decoration of it all. But I think you got to have at least one that's green, but that's just me. Fair enough. You are the stronger Christmas uh, proponent in this pairing. So I will defer (laughs) to you on that. Um, thank you. So in the process of decorating for this party, which we already know as the viewers is not going to happen. Um, Edward is making an ice sculpture of an angel and Kim comes out to find what appears, it looks like it's snowing basically, right? Cause he's like chopping the ice in such a way so quickly it makes little snowflakes of ice. And she's like twirling around and dancing in it and seemingly loving it. And then she and Edward are like having this moment. uh, And then Jim shows up unexpectedly in the backyard and starts shouting um, and yelling. And I can't remember exactly what he's upset about, but he's just like constantly upset. So it doesn't really matter. Um, And 
at, because he's like having this blow up, it distracts Edward from what he's doing. And so he ends up mistakenly like kind of slashing Kim across the palm of the hand. Um, and so then Jim gets even more enraged and is like, see, um, you're a psycho and you're hurting her. You did that on purpose. And of course, Edward is like, no, I didn't. And you, the audience knows that is not how that happened. Um, but nonetheless, uh, so Edward runs away. Um, and Kim is really upset at Jim because of like how he's treated Edward and presumably how he's treated her <laughs> as well. Um, and so she breaks up with him at this point um, in a big kind of shouting match. Um, and you can already tell that Jim is not going to accept this breakup gracefully, um, which he doesn't. And then Kim kind of goes back into the house and explains that Edward's run away. And, you know, so then... Now we're to the final climax of the movie. So when Edward runs away, uh, it seems like, I don't know how the police get involved, but the police are called uh, to deal with this situation. Um, and the housewives are like running around trying to tell the police officer what has happened. And he's basically like, settle down and go home you are out of control. Um, and this is where it is important to mention that the only black person in this entire movie is the police officer. Yeah, interesting. I didn't even really like, that didn't even really like perme permeate, penetrate with yeah. me. I didn't, I wasn't really like noticing that. Well, this will become important to the final climax of what's happening. So uh, he basically says, go on home, just relax, everything's fine. We return back to the Boggs house and there's the realization that no one's coming to this party. Um, so Peg and Bill decide that they're going to get in the car and look for Edward because they've already been looking like on foot, but they feel like they need to go into the car because maybe he's gotten further away than they realize. And then they tell Kim to wait at home in case anyone comes back there. I mean, Edward or really anyone. Um, Edward does indeed come back to the house. And Kim and Edward have, frankly, like their only time, this is the first time they're alone in the whole movie, is in these like last scenes. Um, and Kim, now Kim is in love with him weirdly, uh, and mystifyingly, to be honest, and not because Edward's a bad guy, but it's like, you haven't spent any time together or, or like we, the viewer have not seen you spend time together. So when did this happen? Unclear. Um, and this is when we see the final flashback where Edward is with his, uh, father slash inventor, and uh, Vincent Price is like holding the hands. He's like, see, they're ready. Like, isn't this great? And you can tell that Edward's very excited. And then it's not totally clear exactly, but like the, that the inventor dies and falls to the floor. Um, so I guess in my, in the outline, I said he's had a heart attack, but it could be any number of 
things, but he crumbles to the floor. The hands get ruined. And so then we, the audience, are like, oof, heartbreaker. Oh, God. Um, and so now we return to uh, the kind of final heartbreakiness of this film. Um, Jim, who, as I said, has not accepted that Kim has broken up with him. Him and his friend have gotten really drunk in the friend's van. And so Jim forces this friend to drive over to Kim's house. And the kid is like, please don't make me do that. I can't drive. And he's like, just do it. Um, so then the kid is like weaving all over the streets, um, driving over to Kim's house. And in the meantime, Kevin, the younger brother, um, is walking home from a friend's house. And Edward, who's been kind of milling around the neighborhood, sees that this van is about to hit Kevin. Um, and so Edward pushes Kevin out of the way of the van. And then when Ke when Edward is trying to like check and see if Kevin's okay, he's like waving his scissor fingers in Kevin's face. So Kevin is screaming. And all of the town again has come out hearing all of this kerfuffle. And it looks like Edward is attacking Kevin. And so Jim then shows up of course, because he's in the van that almost killed Kevin. Um, and he starts beating Edward up while everyone else is just watching it happen, not doing anything. Um, and then finally, Edward is like pushed into such like a corner or rage. He takes a swipe at Jim where, of course, Jim's, I think it's his arm that gets cut. Um, and so then everyone is like, oh, <gasps> He is a monster, just like we thought. Um, and Kim is there, and she just tells Edward to run. She's like, go back home. Get out of here. This is not going to go well. Um, the cop who has been, like, in the mix of all of this then follows Edward back to the mansion. And one of the things that was, like, so weird about this is, like, it was unclear to me exactly geographically like where the mansion was, but when Edward runs away, it's like he literally turns the corner and it's right there. Like he's <laughs> he's been maybe like 200 feet away from his original house this whole time. Yeah. Um, so he does run back up to the mansion and then the, the cop uh, goes up to kind of the initial gate of the mansion in his car and then gets out of the car and then walks up enough so he's kind of like out of everybody's line of sight. And then he just shoots two shots into the air. Um, and then he turns around because, of course, all, now all of the neighbor people have like caught up to him, right? So they're all crowding around his car and Joyce is the main kind of like instigator of this whole thing. She's like, what happened? And he's like, I shot him. He's dead. I don't even remember if he says he's dead, but basically he's like, it's, he's, the problem is solved. Don't worry about yeah. it. And yeah. I feel like there's even when he shoots into the air, I think the cop actually says something like, you know, 
stay up there, but like he's, he knows what he's done and he's done it on purpose. Um, because again, this is the whole thing. He's a black guy and he's the only one who understands this dynamic. And he's like, this isn't this guy's fault. I know what's happening. And what's happening is these white ladies are working themselves into a lather about nothing. And so I'm just going to nip this in the bud. So he's like, just go on home. Problem solved. Don't worry anymore. Um, And Joyce is like, fuck that. I'm going up to see for myself. And I was like, Joyce, I hate you so much. (laughs) You're the worst character in the world. Um, So now we're to the final scene, basically. Kim has run up after Edward to the mansion. She gets there before the mob can get there. And she finds Edward up in the attic. And she tells him that Kevin is actually fine. Everything's okay. And they're like having this moment. And who should show up but Jim? And now somehow Jim has obtained a gun. Um, And he shoots at Edward. They start to have a scuffle. And it's not even a real scuffle because Edward is not fighting back. Um, Because he has already learned that that is not going to be a good choice for him so it's actually Kim who finds this massive ass stick in this attic and uh and maybe stick isn't the right word it's more like a log uh and she hits uh Jim with it to get him off Edward Jim of course turns around on her and I I forget if he slaps her or what but he's like beating her up while simultaneously saying, we're in love, why why won't you understand that? You know, which is like, <laughs> what a cool situation this is. Um, and when Jim starts attacking Kim, that's when Edward starts to fight back, in which ultimately Jim gets stabbed in the chest and he falls mm-hmm. out the window to the ground. Yes. I, I, yeah. As that's happened, the mob shows up and they see Jim on the ground and they're like, what's happened? Um, And Kim and Edward have like a few seconds uh, of time. And basically Edward is the one who's like, say goodbye. This is it. You know that. And she's like, no, no, no. And he's like, yes, it just, it's, this is not going to work. Um, so they both say, I love you and kiss and that's it. Um, they will never see each other again after that. As Kim is coming out of the house, she finds an old scissor hand in the defunct lab. So she takes it out and holds it and shows the town. And she says that Jim and Edward killed each other in this fight that they have. And then the mob is like shocked kind of there's like a collective like oh no and and I actually noticed this a lot of the women do like the pearl clutch like you know um and they seem as though they are somewhat chastened and maybe a bit ashamed of what has just transpired um and they all slowly walk away 
And then when we are brought back to the present or we don't know <laughs> what time it is, but we're brought back no idea. to the beginning of the story where Kim is now this ancient old woman and she tells her granddaughter that she never saw Edward again. Um, and the final kind of scene is that we are brought up to the mansion where Edward is, has still continued to exist. Let's say these intervening 50 or 60 years since this story happened. He's still there. He looks exactly the same. Um, and apparently he has been spending all of these interceding decades making ice sculptures of all of the different people and memories that he had from this time in his life. And so there's quite a number of Kim as a young woman. Um, and then we are told, I think it's just a voiceover of Winona Ryder's voice, but I can't remember that ever since that night, which I, again, I think is Christmas Eve, there has been snow in this town where there was never snow. And that is the end of the movie. Hmm. Rough. Not very Christmassy. <laughs> yeah. That's after I finished it, I was like, I see why it's a Christmas movie because it's released at Christmas time and there's a snow element and they like, I mean, Christmas happens in it and like the dad sings a Christmas song on the roof. Um, oh yeah, he does. And that's a song that Isaac sings sometimes. And I'm like, what is that song? Is I've it Good King one. Wenceslas? Is that the no, one? No, well, it's, it's like, and saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. Oh. That's what he was singing. Um, but overall, I, I don't get Christmas vibes from this movie. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know what vibes I get from it. But uh, <laughs> that's why, like, when we were talking before, this is just a lot sadder, I guess, than yeah. I remembered. Um, I still think it's a good movie. I still think it's a science yeah. fiction movie. I clearly think that it brings up a lot of like things to think about that have not changed in the 30 years since this movie was made. Um, but because of that, yeah, it might just be like a little too hard like to be a kind of traditional Christmas movie um because it's just a little I like sad. my Christmas movies yeah I like my Christmas and like I know there are sad Christmas movies like yes of course there are and there are sad holiday movies and you know ones that are tear jerkers and whatnot but I like my Christmas movie personally I like and some of the sad ones are okay but generally I like my Christmas movies saccharine sweet to the point of like obnoxious <laughs> well and also there's like like genres of sad for christmas movie which are yeah. not my cup of tea but like i get as like a thing it's like dead parent okay that's one yes. dead kid yes. okay that's another one i'm yes. an orphan here's another you know like all that like yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm dying of cancer you know like all that yes, yes. those are their own genres yeah. within the larger christmas movie yeah. realm um right but this one is like sad in like a lot of different ways that are not that it's like well yeah it's like it's almost like nobody at the end it's like okay <laughs> like this guy like okay so if kim 
was in love with him or whatever she was by the end, like she doesn't see him anymore because he's now up alone in that thing. Cause, and she told everyone he's dead and he's back to just being all alone in a recluse and nobody really seemed to have learned any type of lesson. No, I mean, we can, we can hope that the townspeople maybe learned something, but the likelihood is that they didn't. Um, Okay, so let's just quickly wrap up with yawns and eye rolls. In terms of yawns, we'll keep it, I'll give a Christmas gift to you, Amy, and keep the scale really easy, which is one yawn, not boring at all, 10 yawns, super fucking boring. Oh, I mean, I'll give this one a one. I didn't find it. I don't think there was anything boring about it. Cool. Great. Done. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. I would give it a one as well. I did not find it in any way boring. Um, in terms of eye rolls, one eye roll is this is nuts. Or no, it's this is basically normal for a movie. That's one. Um, and then 10 eye rolls is like this is nuts. Okay. Um, hmm. I guess I'm going to go like three because like this isn't it is a movie, but it's not I wouldn't really call any of this like quote unquote normal. A um, non-human man with scissors is quite (laughs) out of the norm, but I think it's handled in a semi normal ish way. So it like it doesn't the movie doesn't act like this is such a crazy concept, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Um, it's like, it's believable throughout. So eh, three. Yeah. I think I'll just give it a five mainly in (laughs) deference to the Tim Burton-ness of it. Right. Like it is really visually different from any other, like his like visual style is just very different. That's his whole thing. It happens in every movie. So, you know, it's like true to his vision and because of that, it is weird. It's just weird compared to an another type of film. And so for that, I'm giving it a five. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think it's good. Would you tell people to watch this? Yeah. I mean, I feel like everyone has already, haven't they? <laughs> well, there probably, uh, I mean, yeah, are, there probably are younger people who are not aware that this exists necessarily. Yeah, true. No, I definitely would, especially if you're a Tim Burton fan, especially if you're a fan of any of the particular actors in this movie, for sure. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd definitely tell people to watch it. Yeah, I would say that, like, there are some really good performances in this I wouldn't tell them this is a Christmas movie. (laughs) Yes. I wouldn't say, hey, if you want a nice, warm and fuzzy Christmas movie, check it out. But overall, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also, I would say if you're a Tim Burton person who also wants a Christmas movie, then Nightmare Before Christmas is probably the way to go. go. (laughs) Um, But we needed a sci-fi Christmas movie. So this is where we were. Um, Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if this somehow you'd missed out on this, even if you are our age and just like never got around to it, um, I would say give it a try. Um, You might be pleasantly yep. surprised because it is a really great cast. The production value is good. Mm-hmm. The story is interesting. Um, but yes, probably not the Christmas movie you were looking for. Yeah. I, stick to the holiday. 
And on that, <laughs> we shall conclude. Um, I am Sarah. And of course, the, the holiday fan over there is Amy. Um, and we will see you next week in Spain. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of See You Next Week in Space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.